Welcome back to The Pulse. My name is Adam Armstrong, and I am the head of the Digital Narrative Manipulation Program at the Center for Analytics and Behavioral Change. We are back with our special guest, Kaylin Robertson, a documentary filmmaker from London, who has been on a really interesting journey into the right-wing conservative media space and, and now back out again. Welcome back, Kaylin. Thanks so much for having me yet again. So maybe just start with how you got into filmmaking. And for the audience, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about who you are and where you come from and how you got into filmmaking. So I don't come from a wealthy background or anything like that. Um, just came from Southern Ireland, was born in the UK, but grew up there. Moved to London when I was 18 on my own. Went to university to study film dropped out and started doing marketing instead. I much preferred like the prestige of marketing, branding, events. So I worked for the Gordon Ramsay group for a while as well as a, a few like high-end pet boutiques and then decided to move to the city center. I guess by the time I was like 20, 19, 20, I was kind of living in quite like a cosmopolitan area. All my friends were kind of intellectual liberals, but I wasn't aware of politics. It wasn't something I really cared about. I thought people that go on about politics all the time, I was like, why are you doing that? You're not a politician. Let's talk about like art instead or like media or something. And um, 2016 hit and the whole debacle about Brexit started happening in the media. Nigel Farage was always in the news, always on TV. You couldn't escape it. Everyone was talking about leave and remain. You'd get leaflets through your door all the time. And I was just like bombarded with politics. And I was like, I didn't, this is like unheard of. I don't really care. But then um, everyone in the office started to get really heated about it. And they asked me my opinion of it. And I was like, I don't know the difference between leave and remain. I don't know the difference between left and right. I don't care. But tr um, Brexit happened mid 2016. And it was this huge, huge, huge event. And it was like, suddenly the UK is leaving the EU. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. What's going on? So I started going on YouTube and just like searching basic terms, terms like Brexit, terms like left wing, terms like Farage, just trying to figure out what, who these people were, what was going on. Felt like I was like thrown into it. So a lot of the results I was getting were, you know, Fox News, CNN, mainstream media, discussions, conversations, talking about people on both sides. I listened to Fox a fair bit because Trump started coming up all over the place in the UK media as well as this crazy, you know, orange-haired frontrunner to the media. And it was just, it was just something that I thought was interesting. Um, and I started getting, as soon as I started listening to these people on, you know, mainstream media, I started to get a lot of YouTube recommendations for alternative right-wing sites talking about the same issues. So you had Rebel Media, um, you had Lauren Southern, who was a correspondent there, Gavin McGuinness, who was a correspondent there, Alex Jones, he was verified on YouTube, he had more subscribers than the Young Turks, huge channels, but on their alternative right. And I just thought their content was really engaging and was someone who didn't really have a grasp of politics. I didn't really see how that was fringe or like out there. It just kind of seemed like interesting cultural takes on stuff. And so as I started to watch those, YouTube started recommending a lot more right-wing videos like Stefan Molyneux. And at the time, he would do lots of breakdowns of the history of Che Guevara, the history of China, communism, ideas that I didn't really know about. And he would break it down and talk about them very, very simply, but in a way that was more engaging than like reading a newspaper. So I would listen to that stuff hours on end while I was like cleaning, walking to work, doing everyday stuff, and just becoming completely engrossed in that ecosystem and just becoming a lot more engaged with it. And that was my political awakening. I would have been 21. And then Orlando happened, which was a shooting in a gay nightclub in 
America, like 50 gay people were killed. It was by an Islamic shooter. And I was like, what the hell is going on? That's unheard of. I came out when I was like 14 years old and it was a really big deal. And I remember going to a gay area in Manchester and seeing all these people who were open and who were out and accepting of who they were. Something that I really struggled with when I was growing up in rural Ireland, a lot of sort of homophobia and things like that. And I was like, wow, these are, you know, a gay nightclub is a really accepting, lovely place. And I suddenly felt like it was something that could have happened to me in London. It just felt very, very personal. So I was looking for answers and I was like, how could this have happened? And why isn't it getting this massive coverage? And Milo Yiannopoulos and Gavin McGuinness were on the scene at Orlando hours after it had happened, doing podcasts, talking to each other, interviewing each other, saying this is horrific. This is because the left hates gay people. They hate women. They allow Islamism. They don't talk about it because they prefer to protect Muslims over gays because blah, 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 blah. And to be honest... It just resonated with me. It resonated with millions of people. I went to a gay bar, I think, at that time, and there were, like, so many people saying the same thing, right-wing things. And I was like, whoa, all of these people are looking for answers. They're not getting them from the media because the media doesn't know how to address this. It's just so complex. And anyone who's offering any rational or reasonable discourse with this is not being seen. Those voices aren't being elevated. It's the people offering the quick, snippy, easy answers, a scapegoat, a villain, and a hero. And the villain was Islam. And I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. The media are covering this up. And I really became like into it. Then Trump was elected. And I was like, oh my God, this is a good thing. There's some sort of momentum happening here. So everything started heating up. And then during his inauguration, I quit my job and I started working for Rebel Media as a correspondent. So I met Tommy Robinson. I became his director. He was unknown at the time. I was like, look, because you're working class and because of how you talk, no one takes you seriously. Everyone thinks you're just a football hooligan who's racist. Give you some production value, give, us, give you some legitimacy and people will listen to you. We'll blow up, we'll take over this country. And we did. We had hundreds of millions of views on YouTube with his production value, with all of that stuff. He grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. Um, he was on BBC Newsnight, on TV, all of this stuff. It just grew and grew. It just became massive. And we became really big in North America. We were invited on Infowars, on Ezra Levant's show, on all of these different things. And it just threw us into the whole, into the whole industry. And, and that's when we met Lauren Southern. She DM'd me months later and she was like, look, I love what you guys are doing. Let me fly over to London and do some stuff there. And at the time, Britain was the South Africa of what 2018 was. It was you had all these Americans flying over and saying, whoa, look what's happened here. It's all Sharia. It's all Muslims. It's all, it's all police censorship. It's all arrested for tweets. Whoa, don't let it happen in the US. And it would be very, very big grift. So she flew over to do all of that. It exploded. And that's when we did Farmlands. And it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And obviously all of my normal friends stopped speaking to me because they were like, what the hell is going on? My parents distanced themselves from me. And so my entire world were like just right-wingers, just the far right, just online. There was no one questioning what I was doing. The internet algorithms were giving me more and more extreme stuff. And it was like spiraling down like a rabbit hole, just becoming more and more racist, more and more extreme. It was happening to so many people as well that I knew that I was meeting at the time from so many different backgrounds. Um, and uh, that's when 
things started to get much, much, much bigger. After South Africa, after Farmlands, we really blew up in like North America. We were getting interview requests from all sorts of different people. We had obviously like Alex Jones flying us out to Texas, having us on his show all the time. Our donations were skyrocketing. We organized events outside Downing Street called Day for Freedom, 15,000 people in attendance. I flew over Gavin McGuinness, Miley Annapolis, you know, Stefan Molyneux, everyone was there. And we were sort of really the hub of the online right at this point. Um, so we started um, being connected to more legitimate people, which was quite strange for us. We always felt we were very, very strange. So people like Roger Stone started started coming into contact with us. We filmed an interview with him and, and I still have his number. And we're, we were like connecting with people like that, as well as US senators, the person who ran like the religious advisor to Trump was was donating to us and connecting to us. And it started to become really, really, really legitimate. But we distanced ourselves from Tommy for a while because he went to prison, flew to seven different countries in Europe to do Borderless, which was Lawrence Sutherland's documentary after Farmlands. And because of the success of Farmlands, we raised about 200,000 Canadian dollars to go and do this documentary, way more than the five, because people just loved it and they wanted the same impact that, that Farmlands had on South Africa as the European problem, which was the refugee crisis in, in Europe. They wanted the same kind of South Africa treatment. It became like something to, to replicate. So it wasn't until we were on the ground in, in Turkey and we were actually on the border with Syria and all these different places that we saw the people that we had demonized for so long, that the right-wing media, that Breitbart, that all of the algorithms over the, all the years had pushed to us that these people were fighting-age young men who hated Westerners, they were ISIS fighters, they were hell-bent on destroying the West. The people that we saw at two o'clock in the morning camping out on the border were like women and children, and also men who were just completely just fleeing war, who didn't want to leave the countries that they were, that they were fleeing. They didn't want to invade anywhere they just wanted somewhere that was safe and it was it just was a massive wake-up call and we were like well if we were wrong about this what the hell else are we wrong about and the same thing just kept happening as we actually started leaving our echo chambers actually as we started to travel the world a lot more we encountered you know there was a documentary called white noise that came out recently that that showed gavin mcginnis coming on to lauren and being really suggestive with her and she was like what the hell uh, you know, the right wing men who are the pinnacle of all these great ideas actually turn out to be like gross charlatans who are behaving the same as the things that we call Islamists and these grooming gangs. And it all started to become very contradictory and hypocritical. And then at its peak, at its climax, we had 2019 and we had Christchurch and El Paso and shootings and terrorism that were happening on the same scale as Orlando. But from right-wingers using the same rhetoric that we were using in our videos. And it was so traumatic. It was so messed up. We were like, it wasn't feeling responsible, but it was like being part of the same problem that got us here in the beginning, which was, we thought, which was terrorism. I was like, the terrorism that was happening in Europe, Orlando, you had Bataclan, you had the crazy amount of attacks that were happening in 2016 and the things that were inspiring those attacks. It was extremist Islam, it was extremist ideologies. And now, for some reason, we found ourselves on the same side of people doing the same thing, part of the problem. And it was just like a realisation that it was just a disaster, that we had gone completely in the wrong direction, that the... Questions might have been legit back in 2016, but now two, three years later, the answers we found ourselves perpetuating and pushing are the wrong answers that lead to the same thing. And it was just like a massive realization. It was horrible. It's one of the main reasons I would say, like as well as having a kid, that Lauren disappeared for a year because that happened and she was like, this is too much. And obviously it's the reason that I never came back. 
just because it was so, um, it was just so personal. It was so messed up. Like the manifestos of these people we had read and it just felt very, very close. And it felt like we'd just done a huge amount of damage to society. Like as you know, we had met a bunch of South Africans all the time, everywhere we went in London or anything like that, who had said they'd seen our films and it had opened their eyes. And it was like, for God's sake, in, in, in London, I still get stopped every week. To this day, I walk across Millennium Bridge every day and sometimes I'm holding a camera and people beep or whatever because I have I have millions of views of myself on, on, on YouTube and they're like, keep up the good work. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, I don't mean to laugh about it, but it's like, no, don't keep up the good work. Don't keep up any work. Like this is, you know, you were lied to and you're still being lied to by whoever else you're watching online now. And, um, and it was just a massive, massive shame. And also... I'm not going to say that Lauren was exactly identical to everyone that I worked with. The majority of people that I worked with, like Gavin McGuinness and, you know, Alex and Tommy were grifters and charlatans. They didn't care about their supporters. They didn't really believe a huge amount of the stuff that they talked about. And they spent all their money on crap, on drugs, on on prostitutes, on whatever the hell it was, on private jets, on nice cars. And they didn't spend it on what their donations wanted. And they didn't really care about their supporters. Whereas Lauren was the only one that actually really believed it and, and put all of it into it. And then... And that's why we stayed with her for so long at the time before the ideological differences came in. But yeah, it was a crazy, crazy story. It's impossible to summarize it in, you know, in an hour or half an hour because it was such a long period of time and there were so many different intricacies. But it was a, 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 a crazy, crazy, crazy journey. And that's why now I'm spending so much time, all of my time, uh, making uh documentaries as well as short form content and podcasts for a news tv channel that started that is on the left that talks about the legitimate questions that i had in 2016 that millions of other people have in 2016 meets them halfway and addresses them in a way that actually offers solutions that isn't going to lead to anyone being hurt or any violence or any of the terrible stuff that happened and sort of just offering a solution to the mistakes that the mainstream media made by not addressing these problems in 2016 in a legitimate way and the mistakes that I made and right-wingers are doing by offering people answers that they know or they think are true, even though they're just like easy black and white, you know, solutions. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite a journey you've been on and it's it's you've done a huge amount in a relatively short amount of time. I mean, you went from curious about the right-wing to working with kind of the biggest names in that space. I mean, you kind of, you dropped them very quickly, but you, you worked with Tommy Robinson, who was kind of the first mainstream right-winger in the UK, as far as I understand, and Alex Jones, who runs Infowars, which is one of, I think, the biggest YouTube channels in the world, and Roger Stone, and, and Stephen Molyneux, and so you've worked with these, and Lauren Southern, so you've worked with kind of the core of this, this media machine. Um, can you maybe talk the audience through a little bit of what that, looks like as an industry or as a as a job it's incredibly lucrative it, when when i started in 20, 2016 2017 uh there wasn't really any money in what tommy and i were doing because there wasn't an established ecosystem of the online far right in britain it was very very small scale the average donations were like four pounds a head no one else was doing this so there wasn't an appetite for it from people who were right-wing already uh, people would get their right-wing views from, like, The Spectator or, uh, you know, Sky News Australia or something like that. There wasn't really on other alternative voices. So we very quickly realized that 
um, we needed to create an ecosystem. So we we um, obviously joined Rebel. We started uploading a huge number of videos. We we, we made ourselves very very prestigious and and sort of very. We brought in a lot of production value. We started doing live shows. We built websites. We did all the sort of stuff that like Vice would do or the mainstream media would do. Just basically copy them. Because we really felt that our ideas were fringe at the time. And the only way that people would change their mind or be accommodating to those ideas would be to dress those ideas in the same way that you would dress a set on Channel 4. And you would because that's what people have always trusted. That's what people have always seen. They see news anchors and they're going to tell you the truth to an extent. They're not going to, you know, and, and if you if you had those same news anchors wearing a pajamas, talking into a webcam at three o'clock in the morning, ranting about the stuff that we were ranting about, people wouldn't believe them. And so that gave that like an awe of respectability and authenticity and, and sort of let people more receptive to it. So that kind of ex- exploded and, and blew up. And then when we went to North America, we were like, oh my God, it's already set up. Like it was already there. You had Infowars, who I thought were just a YouTube channel that had millions of views and advertising revenue, which would have been hundreds of thousands, I guess. Not that much if you've got a few staff. And Alex told me they make like 65 million uh, US dollars every year just selling like merchandise, mugs and their, you know, their health products. That doesn't include their advertising revenue. It doesn't include the movie, their, their revenue from their sales or the movies that they commission or the DVDs or anything like that. I would say it's like 100 million altogether. It's these huge scales, money that we had never heard of or would have thought existed in that sphere. And it was all connected um, and it all fed off each other. So you had these new emerging groups like Dave, the Rubin Report, obviously with Infowars, with Rebel, with uh, One American News Network, with the individuals like Mike Cernovich and Roger Stone, who all appeared from the outside to exist in their own small ecosystems, but were all connected through sort of interviews on the surface level. They would all interview each other, it would do very, very, very well for clicks. But behind the scenes, it was like completely solidified. They were all working together, they all had deals together to to have each other's products on all their websites. And it just, it was a very, very, very established web. And it doesn't give that impression when you first look at it. It just looks like a bunch of crazy people talking online with nice cameras, but it was very, very legit. And they had the backing, like when I was hanging around with a lot of these people, they all had the backing of very legit people in their phone books. Like Donald Trump would seldom reply, but would text Alex Jones and I would see it. And and like would would have senators and like, you know, people like Rudy Giuliani, who's fringe now, but very big then, talking to them all behind the scenes. Milo, who was quite big when I was hanging around with him, was getting invited to parties with A-list celebrities in the Hollywood Hills. So it was like extremely legit. And it's just something that we were just so blown away by. And the amount of money involved, everyone was going for dinners at like Michelin star restaurants and fine dining, everyone had drivers. And it was just like... It was as big as mainstream media was in the UK. And so that uh, that made us realize just how much societal impact it had, as well as how much weight it had um, and how connected it was. So that's why we really focused so much of our energy on catering to United States audience, because we felt like that was that was how you grow. That was how you move forward. That was how you I mean, Ezra Levant, as much as I despise him because he's nothing to do with politics, he's just a. Uh, what rhymes with that word? Runt? He's just not a very good person. And he's just like, um, so unlikely. But but he used to say, um, you can't pay the world, you can't save the world if you can't pay the rent. Um, and it was like, 
the money was helpful. I didn't benefit from it in a salary or anything like that, but to be able to have investment, to be able to build studios and be part of all of it meant that you could reach more people and, and grow. So like every right winger that goes online now caters to a US audience. That's why Simon Roche talks endlessly to American networks instead of local South African networks or anything like that or British networks because that's the ecosystem that is established. That's where all the money is. That's where you pander to and you will cater all of your content to that. When we talk about Britain, we're not going to talk about policy in Britain or economy in Britain or how to make Britain better because I guess those people never really cared about Britain or the country that they profess to love so much. They cared about making Britain look bad. They cared about saying, don't be like us. Look how bad we are. Look, fire, flames. Let's start a fire and film it and say, oh my God, Britain's on fire. Don't be like Britain. Donate to us. That's why Russia today had us on all the time and was so nice to us because we were literally making our countries look so bad that the propaganda network of Russia loved it because they were like, yes, you know, the West is weak. And it's just all part of this crazy, crazy, crazy crazy ecosystem that still exists now that led to the election of Trump that will lead to more things like that. Um, it's just huge, yeah. For us in South Africa, it's terrifying because we're seeing this, like we're in this weird moment today as we talk where Trump is in the White House, but he's lost and he's kind of holding it. And so we're seeing that kind of ebb there. But what we're seeing here locally is, is I feel like we're standing on the shore waiting for the wave to arrive. And because we're seeing more and more active disinformation online, um, we're seeing this growing kind of populist narrative and these strategies for communicating. And so it's really interesting hearing you talk about it, but also quite scary going, thinking, oh, that's where we're heading. Because we're kind of, you know, five or 10 years behind you in terms of media consumption and those patterns. Yeah, definitely. And it's so quick. A, a country can switch so, so, so quickly to those ideas and to and and to becoming vulnerable to um, to interference like that as well. Like Britain in 2017, when Trump was inaugurated, when I started, didn't have a media landscape online that people trusted and believed that could shift public opinion en masse, that could actually galvanise tens of thousands of people outside of parliament. The chief of police told me that my protest was the largest right-wing gathering in like 85 years in the UK. And that was within a year of launching Rebel Media UK and launching the channels that we were doing. And the, it happens so, so, so quickly with the right formula and with the right backing. It's why it can happen in South Africa so easily as well as the, the speed at which people will turn off the mainstream television, will turn off reading mainstream media and switch to content that's completely unfiltered, that's, that, that can be incredibly dangerous and, and that can actually lead to gra grabbing an audience that you can move around and galvanize and shift and so unrest is is so so rapid and always underestimated a lot of media are so bourgeois with it they're like well that's not possible it's just they're just going to get the crazies on board it's like normal people are going to be on board with this stuff the people that stopped liz in shopping centers who was in farmlands were normal people the people that stopped me in the airport were normal people the people that people me on the horn are always normal people they're middle class they're educated it's becoming a huge huge problem that transcends way beyond um, a few fringe crazies online. And it can happen so quickly, and it will happen very, very quickly in South Africa, especially as the world becomes more politically unstable and social unrest becomes more normal. And especially 
trumping all of that because of the coronavirus. Everybody is at home consuming online content and there is a direct trajectory. There's no evidence for this, but I just know it is between time spent online and radicalization and and to, to fringe networks. And it's like that. The longer you spend on the internet, if you're susceptible to these ideas, the more crazy and the more you're going you're gonna to find yourself in a bit of a cult like I was involved with. And I think with the pandemic, which is going to go on forever, basically, it's, it's creating such a climate for it. And yeah, it, it's just very worrying. So you, you said that there is no evidence for it. And, um, and there actually is. There's growing evidence. Um, but your, your intuition is absolutely right. And one of the pieces that really struck me when I started doing this work was the story of Caleb Kane, who um, I think it was the New York Times wrote this piece called The Making of a YouTube Radical. And they talk about how Caleb Kane goes through this journey where he, if I remember correctly, he'd signed a progressive petition, like a pro-LGBTIQ petition, and then two years later was arrested for trying to commit a hate crime. Um, he was in the process of trying to buy a weapon, I think, to commit a hate crime, if I remember right. And the article says, like, how does that happen? How do you go in two years from X to Y? Like, what, what was that journey? And they basically looked at his YouTube history. And he was watching a crazy amount of content. He was watching six to eight hours a day. Um, but what, they, what the New York Times did was just explained how because of the way the algorithm works and because of the, the business model behind YouTube, the whole thing is about more time online and radical content drives time online. I know that you have a, an interesting relationship with, with Caleb. Would you be okay to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, of course. I'm due to go on a show at some point soon, but he... Um, I read the article while I was leaving. It was 2019 and it was when the Christchurch thing had happened. And so it was very, very strange timing. So that that came out and I was in the newspaper. Like I was, there was a series of pictures of the headline of that article online and in print. And I was in one of the, the boxes. So I was like, oh, that's weird. And then I read it and I was like, oh my God, I directed like basically all of the videos that they're talking about as well as being the face of some of them. So I was like, oh my goodness. I knew that I was contributing to that kind of stuff and other people being radicalized. But also it was really weird because what he had gone through was exactly the same thing that I had gone through despite the weapons thing, where he was like spending more time and it was increasing. I said at the start of this podcast and YouTube was suggesting more videos and that was from mainstream media and I was consuming more while I was cleaning and things. So I went through down the same path as him But somewhere on that path, I then jumped into it and started making content that was doing the same thing that happened to me and actually taking them down the same journey that happened to me and actually creating this kind of wheel. So it was really, really weird. And then I messaged him like a few months later and I was like, look, I'm not involved in this stuff anymore. I'm like in the middle of pulling myself away from it. I was filming with Louis through some like thing about leaving. And, um, And he was like, so blown away by it. He was like, I didn't know that you were behind loads of this stuff and you went through the same thing that I did. It, it, to him, he felt like it was less sinister. Like there wasn't this, I don't know. He just, it was just very, very, very interesting. And it was like, both of us had been a victim. At first it felt like he was a victim of some of the stuff that I was doing, but we had kind of realized that we were both a victim of the same thing which was an outside force, which was the business model of YouTube pushing more radical content to keep people hooked, which were the charlatans perpetuating the far-right ideas at the very, very top who were there before me, who were doing it in ways that were disingenuous and profiting from it, knowing that they would make, that would make them more money. And um, 
And also, in a small part, to the media and its failure to cover these issues um, in a very serious and, and courageous way and leaving it to the extremists to talk about. You talk about the Labour Party in this country and the anti-Semitism crisis. It wasn't addressed properly because people were too scared about criticising X, Y and Z. And it left it to the far right to to jump to jump on board and to, and to take control of. So we realised that that was the thing that was causing all of this. And just like developed a friendship around it, that we were both kind of victims of the same thing. And it was just fascinating for him to hear my story and how it was so similar to his, but that I was the one making it. And, and it, was, it, was, it, was, it was nice to listen to him as someone who went through the same de-radicalization that I did. And also the whole process of like deconstructing your mind and realizing that you were totally wrong about something that shaped your entire worldview for years. And like the pain of, of that falling apart and coming apart, and like the humility of it. And it was just, it was a very like intimate, very personal thing for both of us. But I think it was very like humbling and it's shared, that sort of shared experience with someone talking through it. It kind of felt like, okay, if he can be de-radicalized, this normal person who doesn't have to go to Turkey and see that it's bullshit and see that these people are real people, then there's hope for everybody else. So it was quite a positive thing. And I assume we'll just be friends forever because of it. Cause it's like such a weird, unique story. It's like, you don't meet someone normally who has been involved in a dynamic like that before. But yeah, it was very damning for, um, yeah, for YouTube and, and sort of, it's very easy to point at me. As left-wingers do all the time, I've been told to my face many times, I can never be redeemed. I'm the worst person on earth. Hitler has caused damage, can, you know, can, should go away and die. And, and, yeah. and it's like, you're doing the same thing that I did by offering these black and white, easy solutions to everything. Him over there, he's the one that did it. Kill him, burn him, burn him with the witch. And it's like, you know, uh, there is terrorism going on. Blame Muslims. You know, there is, um, there is this happening. Blame black people. There's this happening. Blame, blame liberals. And it's this very easy black and white solutions that are incredibly damaging, incredibly lazy. Um, and I think, yeah, I don't know if I'm going a bit of a tangent right now, but that's, that's kind of what I feel like the same thing is happening when people just point at me and say, well, you're a villain and you shouldn't be redeemed. You know, I just think it's not helpful. <laughs> so it feels like there's so much to try and cover in, in such a short space of time. I wanted to ask you, um, I mean, I've noticed that you called the people you used to work with used the term charlatans. And one of the things that struck me like when I watched White Noise was how... So White Noise is this documentary that covers Lauren Southern, who you worked with extensively, and then Richard Spencer and Mike Cernovich. And I'm not sure how involved you were with either of them. But what struck me watching the documentary was that, that none of them seemed particularly... Richard Spencer maybe a little bit, but the other two didn't seem particularly politically invested. How much of... of the kind of right-wing media space do you think is is deeply ide ideological and how much of it do you think is, as you said earlier, extremely lucrative? Um, Lauren Southern was completely and utterly engrossed and involved ideologically from the beginning. She wasn't driven by money or she would have kept the money that she raised. I mean, she spent every penny, but I could see her bank account. By the end of Boardless, there was like nothing left. And that's only something who, that's only something that would happen with someone who was incredibly ideologically driven. Um, and not not driven by money. Otherwise, they would have spent five grand and kept the rest. With Tommy, uh, with Ezra, with Alex, with Gavin McGuinness, with everyone else, it was, and Mike Cernovich, totally and utterly about money. I mean, within minutes of meeting Ezra, 
I was sitting in this hotel and I was like, right, so I think what we need to do is get a new camera. We can get production value and we can do this and we, have, we can do the show called The Empire Strikes Back and we can have Tommy produce it. And it'll be like how we can reinvent like the, the idea of the British Empire and like all these crazy fun ideas. And he was like, okay, so I think what we can do here, I'm just going to show you the back end and, and, and nation builder and the systems that we use to raise money and how we can farm data from petitions that we can do to stop FGM and stop Islam and this and this and this and this and this. So I like your ideas. Yeah, yeah. But we need to turn it into 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 something tangible. And he would just spend hours going on about like how to farm information and how to get as much money as possible, you know, and, and, and eventually we used to do these campaigns and crowdfunded campaigns to raise money for rape victims who had been allegedly victims of grooming gangs and Muslim Muslim gangs. And Ezra would raise 100, 150,000 Canadian dollars to do a petition and, and maybe hire a lawyer for her and raise awareness about it. We would sit and wait for this lawyer and some idiot would turn up who would cost 200 pounds, like 500 pounds in a retainer and they'd put up a billboard for 200 quid and the rest of the money would totally disappear. And we'd be like, well, what the hell is going on? Like, it happened continuously with everyone. Gavin McGuinness, I, I was calling up Gavin and I was like, we're organizing an event in London. That's a protest outside Downing Street. It's to po- protest Tommy being banned from Twitter and it's to raise awareness about censorship and wake up the establishment. And we have raised a little bit of money, but we really want you to come and support us. And he said he would only come if he could have a first class flight. And I was like, well, you don't care about any of this. And he was like really prissy about it. He was like, I've got to have a flight. I want to have a car that picks me up. I was like, fine, fine. But this is working class people's money who have no money. And they've given us a small amount to do this. So we spent like half the budget just getting Gavin here. Milo answers the phone. And you can imagine what that was like. Money, 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 money. The second the plane lands, cancel all my interviews, take me to Harrods. I'm going to buy a $10,000 suit, blah, 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 blah. Uh, we booked him a really fancy hotel that he demanded he stayed in. He was arguing with reception about having a very particular room with a particular view. And none of them cared about the stuff that we were there for, which was to protest internet censorship. They didn't care about it. It was all about the lifestyle. And with Alex Jones, the amount of time I spent with him in the car, he would talk about the types of Gulf streams that he's flown in, the type of private jets that you want. You would be able to tell if someone was politically motivated by something, if the conversations that they had with you in a bar, off camera, were about politics, but they weren't. The second the camera stopped rolling, they shut up about it. And that was so indicative of how they were behind the scenes. It makes me so angry to talk about. A huge amount of money from working class people was given to those uh, those guys. People who aren't the most intelligent, people who are concerned that things might change, who are older, who have questions that the media haven't answered, who are looking to these guys in desperation and saying, here's five pounds, here's 10 pounds, I don't have any more. And they're spending it on lavish stuff that they would never, that the people that gave it to them would never imagine ever going to even on their anniversary. And it was like such a scam, such a scam. Mike Cernovich was the same. Mike Cernovich was making a film called Hoaxed. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Nice that you're copying us. But also, you know what? I'm not in this for competition and for money and for a grift. I want everyone to be making conversations about censorship and everyone to to wake everyone up. And he called me up as soon as he found out that we were doing boardless and he was saying, right, so 
uh, I hear you're doing a documentary. Farmlands is really successful. But why did you put it out on YouTube for free? What was the point in that? I was like, Mike, we want to wake people up. We want everyone to know what's going on. We put it out for free because we want everyone to see it. And he said, well, that was a mistake. I put hoaxed out on Vimeo for $7.99. I do sales for $3.99, this, this, this. He gave me all of these contacts with all of these people to show us how to, how to farm data from like YouTube comments, people that like and subscribe to the video so that you could sell their data to like advertising companies. And we're like, we don't want to take our supporters for a ride. These people need to know what's going on. And it was like this constant battle with, with people outside Lauren who were just monetizing everything. And it would be forgivable if they had used that money to, I mean, not forgivable because the far right is very bad and it shouldn't, whatever. It would be forgivable if, <laughs> yes, 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 if they had used it to grow what they were doing, to increase the quality and the quantity of output. Tim Pool raised a huge amount of money, he told me, for this crowdfunder to, to launch this van that he was going to buy and he was going to put antennas on it and he was going to have a team that drove around America and covered every protest legitimately that the mainstream media wouldn't talk about and they would expose Antifa and they would have this broadcast. He raised all this money for this van and he never even spent it because he blew it on his house or his wife or whatever. And it's like... That's the worst part of it. It's not even that they're just only driven by money. It's that they don't use the money for what they told the supporters the money was for. It's disgraceful. We raised Tommy £450,000 in three months from January till March 2000 and No, from February till April 2018, as soon as Farmlands came out. He paid us 10000 which is fine. We don't need the money. He bought 5000 worth of kit. And who knows what happened to the rest of it? It's gone. <laughs> it's just like, it's just disgusting. It's so disgusting. It's so disingenuous. There is no other... I know I compare the far left and the far right every now and then, but there is nothing as insidious as that uh, in any other political spectrum. As, as what they do with their supporters' money and what they promise and what they deliver. It's infuriating. Lauren is the only one that doesn't do it. Sure. Wow. Sorry, I get very wound is up that... about that. No, I, it's, it's understandable. It's, a, it's a, I think, an appropriate response. Um, if we start talking about your sort of departure from all of this and shifting out, it sounds like it was a combination of, of you, you said earlier that you realize some of the solutions they were offering would have led to more violence. Uh, you mentioned last week that that the the idea of having homogenous societies would have would have been implemented in a hateful way. And then it also sounds like a lot of this was about essentially fraud or misappropriating funds. Um, and it must have been quite hard for you if you believed all of this stuff to be surrounded by, as you call them, grifters. Yeah, but obviously because we were um, we were so involved in it and so radicalized by it, you know, a lot of people say, "Well, why didn't you just walk away the second you found this out?" And it's like we we felt that the by any means necessary approach really felt like yes, we could put up with that stuff. Infighting looks bad. It's just going to cause us to look more fringe and less believable, regardless of these uh, grievances that we have. And Lauren hated it she hated those people and so did we we put up with it because we were like well it people are still being woken up the views are still going up people are still watching and we're doing a good job we're being recognized in the street by people who are shaking our hands and saying keep up the good work and we still felt like we were doing the right thing and it has its problems massive problems it's a lot where it's a lot more annoying now for me now that i've left because it's not just that they were wrong totally wrong ideologically it's also that they did it so it's twice as bad but yeah it was just like it's just like put up with it. I mean, so many people on the right put up with it, and they just they just do it for for the by any means necessary reasons, but also because to exist you kind of have to 
I think you just have to kind of put up with what um, those on your side do so that you can avoid criticism and avoid upsetting the movement and the conservatives and, and the far right. And it's, it's just kind of a perpetual system. It's interesting because I've heard you say that my you talk about a process of leaving and you say while I was leaving. So it sounds like you describe yourself as having left the alt-right. Is that correct? How would you frame that? Yeah, so it was in small steps. I think a lot of people who have, who have left, who have left very publicly, like to cite this very specific moment where, you know, they saw a black person holding a baby and they were like, whoa, you know, this, and it's just very silly and very, very childish. It's like, it was, it was a hugely long and drawn out process that was the same as the process that involved entering the far right and entering the online right. As I told you, it was small steps. It was YouTube videos that suggested an idea that wasn't too fringe, but maybe opened your mind to something else. And then it was small steps towards thinking maybe feminism isn't the best thing for women, or maybe societies would be a little bit happier without conflict if they were a little bit more homogenous. And it was small steps. And it was also small steps leaving. And it was, you know, deconstructing your worldview takes a long time. And I think that's why so many people on the far right are so unreceptive to criticism and unreceptive to probably listening to me or, or, or anyone else who has left. Because I think your mind shuts down to the idea that you might be wrong about everything. And if you were, and, and again, the way that I talked about traveling in real life and actually going to Turkey and going to North, North Africa and actually physically being on the ground with the people that we had demonized for a long time, people that we had read about extensively for years in far-right media as being terrorists or people who wanted to invade, and seeing that the reality was totally opposite was the first steps to deconstructing our worldview. If we were wrong about that, then maybe we were a bit more open-minded to be wrong about something else. Obviously, what you saw in White Noise with the way that Gavin was treating Lauren it was seeing these men that had perpetually held up this idea at the top of our movement that, you know, they are the saviors, that, you know, that, that, that Muslim grooming gangs are, are taking over our countries and they don't treat women properly. They're doing exactly that. And, and it, was, it, was, it was having all of that broken down slowly. And obviously, if you mix that with the grifting and the misspending and the, that sort of charlatan behavior that I've described with Tommy and with Gavin, it all just started to unravel. And then obviously what I spoke about with, the, with Christchurch and the terrorist attacks that happened in El Paso, in 2016 and 2017, there weren't right-wing attacks like that. Everything was happening from, from Islam. You had like seven attacks outside the UK and Europe, four attacks in Europe, like 20 girls blown up at Manchester Arena. Everywhere we looked in the media, it seemed to all come from Islam. And obviously that's what radicalized us to the far right and us to, to, to ideas that were receptive to the far right. And we felt like that by, by countering that, we were countering terrorism and counting the things that could lead to terrorism and actually reading the manifestos of the Christchurch shooter and of the El Paso shooter mirrored our rhetoric just as much as the rhetoric of the Islamists who were quoting radical imams in Saudi Arabia and in corners of Britain. And it felt like we were contributing to the same problems that had got us here in the first place. And so it was a mix of all of those different things that, that pulled us back. But what's, what was a bit worrying was it took, it took us, took me to physically have to witness all of that and to go through all of that and to, and to be on the ground to, to pull back 
and to unravel. And a lot of people won't have those experiences, especially with COVID. A lot of people are still online and they're still, they're still in their echo chambers. And it, as it took us to, to leave our echo chambers to leave, no one else is really doing that. Caleb Kane's story obviously gave me hope because he seemed to do it all by himself. And that's why I said that was such a positive relationship and something that gave me, you know, a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel for everyone else. But I'm feeling a bit pessimistic about it because people are very stubborn and people are very set in their ways, especially as they get older. And, you know, a lot of people are joining, but not a lot of people are leaving. So I don't, I don't really, um, yeah, I don't really have massively high hopes. It is a really complicated thing. We're going to wrap this up and we'll meet again next week to talk about next steps and this kind of tension that the left finds themselves in with trying to make informed content that's also compelling and this growing concern around fake news and these kind of issues. We have been in conversation with Kaylin Robertson, a filmmaker from London, England. Thank you so much.